Well, this morning, uh, we are going to look at the preeminent task of the church. We will see the mission that Christ has given to his church. And this uh, mission is massive. It's daunting and impossible. The mission to make disciples of all nations. And this mission seems impossible for us. And, but this seemingly impossible mission that we have been given, when we consider that impossible mission, what would compel us to press forward? What would compel us to do such an impossible task as make disciples of all nations? What would drive you to spend and be expended for this task? What was it that drove those who came before us to labor and strive for this mission? What was it that gave the missionaries in times past the strength to devote their lives for the Great Commission? Well, I want to uh, share with you a little bit of the, uh, the story of Adoniram and Ann Judson to illustrate what drove them to dedicate their lives to this preeminent task? Adoniram Judson, he was converted in December of 1808. And just one year after his conversion, he desired to be the first American missionary to the country of Burma. Burma uh, is modern-day Myanmar, and it's just east of India. So one year after his conversion, on June 28th of 1810, Adoniram went to this newly formed uh, American board for foreign missions, and he offered himself as the board's first missionary. And at the time, Adoniram was not married, but he wanted to be uh, married to this girl named Anne Hasseltine. And so Adoniram, desiring to marry her and, and leave on the field as missionaries with uh, Anne wrote to her father, John Hasseltine, to request his consent that he can marry Anne. So I want you to listen to the letter that Adoniram wrote to her father requesting permission to marry her. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the climate of India, and to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved, 
through her means from eternal woe and despair, end quote. Now that is quite the letter to ask for consent to marry someone's daughter. Well, Anne's father left the decision up to her, whether she would marry Adoniram and, and move to Burma as missionaries. And as Anne contemplated whether she would accept this offer uh, as a life, as a missionary and, and married to Adoniram, she journaled the following. I want you to listen to this. She said, Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. And were it not for these considerations, I should with my present prospects sink down in despair, especially as no female has, to my knowledge, ever spent her life among the heathens. Nor do I yet know that I shall have a single female companion. But God is my witness that I have not dared decline the offer that has been made to me, though so many are willing to call it a wild and romantic undertaking. End quote. Earlier I asked you what would drive and compel missionaries and what would give them the, the strength to dedicate their lives for this task, to devote their lives for the Great Commission. What gave Adoniram and Ann Judson the strength to, to move to another foreign land and preach the gospel to those who did not know Christ? And despite the immensely hard ministry that they foresaw and in actuality that they experienced, what was it that, that gave them the strength? Well, Adoniram and Ann knew. They knew that Jesus is faithful. And his promises are precious. They did not do this task by their own strength or by their own willpower, but because of a faithful Savior. And they knew that Christ is faithful and his promises are precious. So this morning, we're going to look at this Great Commission passage in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So if you would, please open your Bibles there now. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And my aim is to put before you this morning three considerations about the Great Commission that, so that you would be emboldened to fulfill the mission of the church. That is to make disciples of all nations. So my prayer this morning that is that as a result of, of this sermon, that you would devote yourself to take one significant step towards advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would think and in your mind and pray even now, what would God have you to do to advance the Great Commission? In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, as I said, we will see three considerations about the Great Commission that will embolden you to make disciples of all nations and fulfill the mission of the church. First, we're going to see Christ's authority in verses, verse 18. Then we're going to consider Christ's commands in verse 19 and beginning of 20. Then we're going to consider Christ's presence in verse, the end of verse 20. So let's read our passage together now in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Now, these are obviously the the closing words of Matthew's gospel. And Matthew has given this whole account of the words and the works of Jesus Christ. And he closes with this passage called the Great Commission. And what we would see is that if we had read through the entire gospel this morning, we would see that Jesus himself had proven that he was authoritative over and over. In his life and his ministry, Jesus had proven himself. In his genealogy as the son of God was firmly established. His claim to be Israel's long-awaited Messiah was fully vindicated. His redemptive death on the cross had been accomplished. And now Jesus is raised from the dead and he is speaking to them as the resurrected Lord. And his disciples now gather before him for this final time in in Matthew's account. And uh, so there's this this sense that he is passing on this ministry that he has started. He's passing it on to his disciples and, and us as the church by extension, because we are, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so what can, what is it that we can say about Christ? He had proven himself with signs and with wonders and miraculous teaching, miraculous deeds and teaching. He had proven that he was indeed the one true King of Israel. And now having been crucified, he is risen from the dead. But what is the climax of all of this? What is the climax and what is Matthew's gospel pointing towards? Well, Matthew's gospel ends with this all-important great commission passage. But I don't want the the brevity of these few verses to, to fool you. Because Jesus has packed so much into these few verses. In these few verses, he speaks to us of the order of the universe, in that he has universal authority. He speaks to us of the future of the nations. And he speaks to the mission of the church. And he expresses that that power that by which we minister um, is, is through him. And it's all packed into this one brief passage. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to find out what we are called to do as Christians. We are going to find out what we are called to do as the church. And yet we also find God's provision for that ministry all in these verses shown to us in utter clarity. And so we need to really understand this passage. We need to to embrace it and bring these considerations into our hearts and our minds. And I want to just say we need to think less about what we can get out of the church and more about how we can serve and how we can be used in this church for the glory of Christ. We should not just be receivers of ministry, but, but givers of ministry, those who provide ministry to others. We should be a support to one another in the work of Christ. And so that's what we want to look at today. We want to do is understand 
what is at the very heartbeat of why a church exists and what is our purpose. Look, the church belongs to Christ. He purchased it with his own blood. The, the church is his and what he wants for the church, what the church is what the church should become and what we should aspire after and do. So it's not all about what we want. It's not about seeking what our felt needs are and seeking to have those needs met. The primary question for any church is what must our church be about? And when we ask that question, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, gives us the answer. So as I mentioned, we will see these three considerations about the Great Commission that will embolden you to fulfill the mission of the church. Let's look at that first point in our outline now. Number one, consider Christ's authority. Consider Christ's authority in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And that term authority denotes authority to rule or right to control. It, it denotes absolute power or warrant. And it speaks of Christ's absolute right to control and govern everything. And here Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. I want you to see that this phrase heaven and on earth, those two contrasting words are meant to show that Christ has authority over the entire universe, uh, over heaven and earth and everything in between. He has authority. And this is universal authority. Just think of it. The whole world is wondering how we as Christians have the nerve to go and tell people that they are sinners how we have the nerve to go into other nations, other countries, other languages and cultures and say that they are sinners, and that they must repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. How do we have the nerve to do that? But Christians, we can do so because we have a warrant to do so. We can do so because we as a church are under the universal authority of Christ. And uh, as Christians, we can all give a, a hearty amen that we are under Christ's authority. We love that Christ is, has universal authority and we believe it. We have no problem with that. But what do we have a problem with? We may have... Um, what, I want to say, what should this absolute authority mean for us practically? If Christ has absolute authority, it means that we as Christians must come under Christ and under his authority. And we must look to him to give us our instructions and to define for us the mission of the church. And that is what coming under Christ means. Coming under his authority is that we look to him for what we are to do. Therefore, our church and this fellowship group, we must always ask, what would you have us do, O Lord? What would you have us do? You see, Jesus Christ has a will for his church and he has the right to govern his church. 
Jesus showed his authority, did he not? He showed it in his teaching over disease, over demons, over the physical realm. He had authority to forgive sins and to raise the dead. I just want you to think about all that Christ had absolute authority over. He showed authority in his teaching. Men said, never has a man taught like this before, John 7, 46. He showed authority over human disease. He had authority over blindness to heal a man born blind, John chapter 9. He showed authority over demons in the, in the spiritual realm. He commanded the demons to come out and they came out. Matthew eight thirty two. So supernatural beings that are evil responding with immediacy to the command of Christ. Just think about that. He has authority also over nature. He spoke to the winds and the howling seas. And he said, hush, be still. And the water became like glass. Mark 4, 39. He has authority to forgive sins. Oh, we need that, don't we? He told the man on the bed that was lowered down through the roof to him, your sins have been forgiven you. Luke 5, 20. He has authority to raise the dead. You remember Lazarus? He was in his tomb there, dead for four days. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And come forth he did. John eleven forty three. Christ has authority over natural disasters, over hurricanes and cyclones and tornadoes, earthquakes, volcanoes, over nations and governments and militaries and dictators. So missionaries don't need to hesitate about going to an area impacted by hurricanes because Christ has authority over hurricanes. Missionaries don't need to doubt whether they will make countries and disciples with hostile governments because Christ has authority over all nations and governments and militaries. It was just over a year ago, in September 2017, that a large outbreak of the bubonic plague struck the island of Madagascar. And you may have seen that story in the news that it was spreading the bubonic plague. You thought black death had been eradicated, right? Hundreds of years ago. But it was spreading around the, the island of Madagascar at alarming rates. And some strains of the plague, called the pneumonic plague, could kill a person within 24 hours. But missionaries do not need to fear proclaiming Christ in countries with the plague because Christ has authority over bacteria and viruses. Christ has authority over life and death itself. Just think about it. Who's speaking to them? It's the resurrected Lord. The resurrected Lord has authority over death itself. So our strategy for making disciples must not come from, from man-made things. It must not come from anthropology or psychology or social studies or cultural studies. But we look to Christ for our great commission game plan. Next, I want you to notice in verse 18 that God the Father is the one who has given his son this authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And this granting of authority 
is, echoes what the Old Testament prophet Daniel said. You may remember this famous passage, the Son of Man passage in Daniel chapter 7. And many of those hearing Jesus say that all authority had been given to him may have thought of this exact passage in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. So let me read to you what Daniel says in, in, that, in that passage, what the prophet Daniel saw in his vision. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. This is referring to Christ. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this universal authority that's been given to Christ was given to him by his father. And so as Christ's disciples, this is the very authority that we need for this huge preeminent task of the church. So we've now considered that, looked at that first consideration. We must consider Christ's authority. Now I want to move on. Let's look at the second consideration. Second, you must also consider Christ's command in verse 19 and the beginning of 20. Look at that now, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I want you to notice right at the beginning of those first two words in, in verse 19 where it says, go therefore. Christ has just established his universal authority. And now on the basis of that universal authority, he says, go. So his command to the church flows from his authority. You can't miss that. It flows from his authority. In other words, the word therefore in verse 19 indicates that his universal authority is the basis of his giving a universal mission. So here's what I want you to see. Christ has universal authority, and with that universal authority, he now gives us a universal command, a universal mission for his people to follow. And what is the universal command that he's given us? Well, on a grammatical level, the, the real command in this whole passage is to make disciples. That is the mission of the church, to make disciples. The, the going and the baptizing and the teaching show us how disciples are to be made. So, but I want to, we got to look at each of those four verbs here to better understand the, the command of Christ. That first word is go. The first verb is Go. And I want you to realize that translators correctly translate that as an imperative because of its placement before the main verb. The main imperative, the main command there is make disciples. But because it's placed before it, it also has that imperative sense, that command that we are meant to, to go just as, as we are commanded to make disciples. In other words, um, both, of those are, both of those actions are commanded the going and the making of disciples. So often I want, you will hear people say, there are two ways that you can participate in the command to go. You can go yourself or you can support those who are going. 
Maybe, have you heard anybody say that? You can go yourself or you, you can support those who are going on the field. But I want to challenge that a little bit and say that's not fully biblical. That you can just go yourself or support those who are going. Because Christ's command here is for all of us to be making disciples. This is a, a command for all of us to participate in. We are all called to make disciples, not just to support those who are going. And I want to say some of us will be making disciples here in this country, and some of us will be making disciples in other countries. But it's, it's a command that we must all embrace. We must all be about going to make disciples. But I, a question that I want to address that some of you may be asking is, but, but David, I'm not, I'm not a pastor. I can't baptize people. I'm not a missionary, so how can I go and make disciples? Well, you can go in the sense that you can intentionally plan evangelism. You can intentionally speak with your neighbors about the gospel. You can intentionally go around the neighborhood of the church and share about the good news of Jesus Christ. So I don't want you to think that you are fulfilling this command just by waiting people for it to ask you, what must I, be, what must I do to be saved? That, that may happen, but you should be intentional about bringing the good news to others. And look at the word baptize. You can encourage others in this important ordinance of the church. You may not be a pastor who can baptize here, but you can be a part of, of making disciples by encouraging those who are disciples to be baptized and to follow the Lord's command here. You can encourage them in that task and, and point them to the, to the um, membership center where they can learn about how to be baptized. Encourage them in that task. The word teaching here, you can teach other believers uh, that God has placed in this church and in your life and in your Bible studies. You can teach them the word of God. For example, the Bible would have older women to teach the younger women. All of us can be about teaching the word of God. So there's much that any of us can do, even as, as a lay person. You may be working a secular job, but this command to make disciples is for each one of us. So it's not just that some people go and some people support those who are going, but we are all called to make disciples, whether here or abroad. So we've now looked at that, that first command to go. Uh, but I want us to focus now on the main verb, to make disciples. Let's look at that together. This is an active imperative, and, and make disciples means to cause someone to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And in these last two verses, the overarching command then is to make disciples. This is the, the, the main overarching command of this whole passage. And making disciples is to call people to, to learn from Jesus and to follow Jesus a disciple is one who learns from and follows and imitates their teacher. That is making disciples. So here's the thing. We as Christians, we have the one true message. We have the good news of salvation. We, can, we, we know that Christ has saved us from our sins, that we, we deserve his righteous punishment. And, and yet we have this one message and it belongs to us. We possess that. We exist for the, for the glory of Christ and for the benefit of others who do not yet know him. That's why we exist. It's not simply so that we can enjoy a wonderful body life as a church and, 
and uh, wonderful times of fellowship. And, but we exist to spread the fame of Christ's name to every creature on earth. The purpose of God and the authority of Christ call us to so much more than just enjoying fellowship here. And because the church is his, because the church was bought by his precious blood, then Christ, as it were, calls the shots. Christ tells us what we are to do and we respond with, yes, Lord, whatever you say. This is what we embrace. So we who are disciples are are to go and to make more disciples. We are to to teach them to receive Christ by faith for their salvation. We teach them to submit to his authority and to live in obedience to him. So we've looked at those commands to go and to make disciples. I also want you to notice what our text says next. It says, we are told to make disciples of all nations. This refers to nations in every corner of the globe. Every corner of the globe. So Christians, we have a worldwide mission. And have you ever thought about why our, our mission extends to, to every nation? Ever thought about why, why are we called to go to every nation? I believe that Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 gives us uh, one of the answers for that reason. Listen as I read Isaiah 49 verse 6. The Lord says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Listen to this. He says, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So it is too small a thing for the Messiah just to be worshiped by Israel. It is too small a thing for him just to receive the worship of one nation. No, we must. He he deserves the worship of the entire world that all nations and people would bow before him in worship. And that is why we have a worldwide mission. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And that's why we bring it to those who are not yet worshiping Christ. There are places, as you know, where they are not worshiping Christ. And we want Christ to receive all the glory and all the praise and all the worship. And so we go. And we make disciples wherever there need to be. Wherever people have not heard about Christ, wherever they are not yet following him in full obedience. And sometimes in, in ministry at, maybe at Grace Church here, we have success in our ministry. But we cannot be satisfied in success, with success here because Christ, it is too small a thing for Christ just to be worshiped at Grace Church. Christ deserves the worship of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So we want the whole world to know him. So we can't be satisfied with with things going well at grace. We must have an urgency to see the unreached millions have Christ proclaimed to them and turn from their sins to worship him. So we have a global mission, one to all the nations. We've now looked at the, considered the command of Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. I want us now to look at the last two verbs, baptizing and teaching. These are the means by which we are to make disciples. We proclaim the gospel to men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
And then we are to proclaim the good news of salvation to them so that they can be rescued from their sins. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're hearing this and you're really realizing that you're not a true disciple of Christ. And you're saying, how can I be a disciple if I don't submit to his authority? If I don't worship him? You can't be a disciple of Christ if you don't worship him. So if you're outside of Christ this morning, I want to speak to you. I want you to realize that you are a sinner. And, and your sins are not just against other people. They are against your creator, the holy God who made you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And yet you have sinned against him. And your sin against such a holy God is deserving of eternal punishment. The God who made you and created you is, is at enmity with you as a sinner. You are under his wrath and under his just punishment. And one day, if you were to die today, you would be in the lake of fire. And so I, I urge you to consider your sin before this holy God, to, to realize that you have offended the God who made you. And God cannot overlook your sin and just forgive you because he would no longer be holy. If he just erased the slate and said, you're free, I, you're, you're pardoned, would he be a holy God? No. He, God is holy and he must punish sin. So if you acknowledge your sin, you realize that you have offended a holy God, what must you do to be saved this morning? What must you do? Well, the solution is, is not to try to achieve a righteousness of your own. The solution is not to, to seek to earn God's favor. No, dear friend, you must look outside of yourself to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed God's commands and fulfilled his law, who lived a perfect life. Not only did he live a perfect life, but he died on the cross. He took on the cross, he took the punishment for, of the sins of all those who would ever believe in him. So that if you today turn from your sins and look to Christ as the only way of salvation, you can be forgiven. Because Christ did not stay dead. He did not just bear the wrath of God on the cross, but he rose from the dead, showing that Christ had accepted his sacrifice. And so if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, not in your own works, but you look to his righteousness, you can be saved and brought back to relationship with him today and in eternity. So I would urge you to look to the substitute, the perfect substitute that you need, one who has righteousness and who can take, who took the wrath of God on behalf of sinners on the cross. Turn away from your sins, repent of them today and trust in Christ for your salvation. And for those who have repented of their sins and, and trust in Christ, they become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And disciples, as you know, next in our text is they are baptized. They must be baptized and taught the word of God. So let's first look at the word baptism. In the church age, believers are to be baptized or immersed in water as a public testimony of their faith in Christ and identification with him. So baptism symbolizes that internal reality that has happened at their salvation. It's an outward demonstration of an inward spiritual reality that has occurred 
at their conversion. And our text, look at it here, it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing in the name of something means to be baptized in identification with, to be identified with Christ and in in a new allegiance to him. So disciples are to be publicly baptized in identification with Christ and with the, the triune God, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to baptize in someone's name is to baptize by that person's authority. And it's interesting here that the word name is singular, isn't it? It says, um, it doesn't say to baptize in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in the name singular. So this, the word name singular shows the essential unity of the three persons of the Trinity. We are to be baptized in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It speaks of unity as well as diversity in the Trinity. So the discipling role involves connecting people by baptism to the action of the Father, through the Son, and by the means of the Holy Spirit. But as we're talking about baptism, I think it's important to call a time out. Because there are many in this room who may not have even been baptized themselves. That you are a a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have not yet been baptized. So let, let me ask you, if you have not been baptized, why not? Perhaps you didn't realize this is part of Christ's command. But now you see it. It's in our text here. Christ's own words, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't seen that before, now you have. And you can and seek baptism as an expression of your identification with Christ. So we've now looked at one of the means by which we are to make disciples baptizing Now let's look together at the other means which we are to make disciples, which is teaching them. Verse 20 starts with teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So in Christ's mission to the church to make disciples, a key aspect is teaching. We are to teach in biblical doctrine. Biblical instruction must be central in the church to provide instruction to the disciples. So the church must not be an entertainment venue to to excite the crowds. It must not be a political force in government. Christ commands the church to be about teaching. And that is what we love at this church, at Grace Community Church, is the teaching of God's word, that we may know him and his instructions for our lives. So we teach people the Bible. We teach people uh, theology. And this is so central and important for you to understand that genuine biblical ministry is aimed at your mind. It's aimed at your, your thoughts and your understanding. Genuine biblical ministry is not meant to make you feel warm and fuzzy. It's to, it's to teach you the truth of, of God's word so that you would understand it. So this means that we, as, as we're making disciples, we have the responsibility to teach others to know the truth, to love the truth, and to live the truth. To know the truth means that we must first teach people to, how, to, how to understand sound doctrine so that we must teach others to devote themselves to the careful study of God's word so that they can know what the word of God is teaching them. We must also teach believers how to, to love the truth so that when they have the truth in their mind and they understand it, it impacts their hearts. They have an affection for the word of God and for his truth. 
So they know the truth and they love the truth. But not only that, but they live the truth. As we are making disciples and teaching them, we want them to live the truth and practice what they are hearing. So we, we teach, but we also admonish. We help people on their path as they're trying to grow in sanctification. We teach them to, to love the truth and to live the truth. We don't just want people who know the word of God, but who are worshipers of God. So we, we work on their mind, their hearts, and their wills. And I think it's important as, as a church that we also live before one another. Uh, we have our lives as open books before one another in, in Bible studies that we are, we are engaged in one another's lives. That's why it's so important to be connected to a smaller group like a Bible study where people can know you and, and have impact in your life and can teach you the word of God. So that's important to be in each other's lives. As we look back now at our outline, we have been introduced to the first two considerations about the Great Commission, Christ's authority and Christ's command. Now let's look together at our third point. Third, you must also consider Christ's presence. At the end of verse 20, Christ's presence. Verse 20, the second half says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if this preeminent task of the church is too overwhelming for us, if in our weakness we are, are too frail to accomplish the task, we have now not only Christ's authority and warrant for it, we also have a promise of his presence. And I just want you to think about the original setting that Jesus is, is talking to his disciples in. He's giving them this worldwide command to make disciples, saying, go and make disciples of all nations. But think about who these men were. They were really nobodies. They were fishermen, and they were workers with their hands and laborers. Matthew was a tax gatherer. So there's no intrinsic power, no intrinsic authority or influence that these men had. And here, Christ is, is calling them to do this impossible task. And on a human level, we'd say, there's no way it can happen. But when we look at verse 20, we see the promise that Christ has given of his presence. So he says here, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This word lo or, or behold is used to emphasize the importance of something. When you see this, he's wanting you to say, pay attention to what I'm about to say. He says, and lo, I am with you always. So we must be careful to remember what he is saying here. First, he's pointing out, he says, I am. This is his identification. And we need to be careful to remember the identity of Christ. He says, I am. He is the one with universal authority. And when you think about making disciples in your life, think about what does the identity of Christ mean for you as you seek to accomplish that mission? As you seek to accomplish making disciples by, by teaching them, by evangelizing them, and baptizing them, and, and having them know the word of God, what does his identification mean, his authority? Jesus then says that he is with you always, which is continuation. Because Jesus will never stop being with us. There is no break in his presence with us. Jesus says, also says here that he will be with us even to the end of the age, which is duration. 
Jesus says he will be with us even to the end of the age. This is unending duration. So we have identification, continuation, and duration. And then after the end of the age, what is it? We will be with Christ for all eternity. So in this verse, we've seen that the one who has all authority is now the one who is always with us, even to the very end of the age. He attends us as we do our ministry. So as we close, I would beg you to see the importance of this mission for the church. To see how you are called to be a part of it, to participate in making disciples. And though this is a massive mission, though it is impossible by our own strength, we have Christ who has given us his authority and warrant to do so. We have the promise of his presence to go and make disciples of all nations. And as long as there are people without Christ, we must be willing to go. The mission is not done. And so our hearts must be fixed on that, that there would be new worshipers of Christ, new people that would worship our Lord and Savior. So we've considered Christ's authority. We've considered the command of Christ to make disciples. And we've considered the promise of his presence while we do that that he will hold us in that task and strengthen us for it. So let's pray now and, and ask that God would fulfill the mission of his church by using weak vessels such as you and I, that he would be pleased to see his name glorified around the world by you and me. Let's pray now. Lord, we thank you that though we are weak and though we are frail, that you are not, that you are the sovereign Lord over the universe, that you are our creator and that you have given us by your authority this mission and yet you are with us in your presence, Lord. I pray that you would get what you were worthy of in our lives, that we would dedicate ourselves to, to, uh, to bringing the Great Commission the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. For you are worthy and we love you. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.